0: I am George Techmanchev. This is the third in our series on the Easton 100th anniversary book that is going to be published later this year, bringing you another segment now on the history of the Easton Company. On September 18th of 1953, just over 30 years after making his first commercial archery tackle, Doug Easton incorporated his company in Los Angeles. To name it, He took his own full name james douglas easton and shortened it to jazz d easton incorporated doing business as easton now by this time easton was the top aero supplier in the world jim makes his own way by 1954 jim easton a natural engineer like his father before him was in his third year of ucla engineering school even as a full-time student he was still working for the family business Remember, he had started at the age of 16 at UCLA. However, as is fairly common at that age, he had his share of tension with his father. Doug had wanted Jim to leave school to work full-time in the company. Jim wanted to finish his degree and get experience away from his father's workbench. Jim's younger brother, Bob, would face a similar challenge later. I was in a shouting argument with Dad about something or other, and I said something along the lines of, You think Jim and I are stupid? He looked at me, narrowed his eyes, and said, Of course I don't think you're stupid. The offspring of a racehorse isn't a plow horse, after all. The following year, Jim left Easton and finished his degree at UCLA, but now, estranged from his father and cut off financially, he supported himself by working for Douglas Aircraft. Jim proved capable of outperforming even his workaholic father and worked all day and still earned top grades studying at night. Douglas was one of the largest companies in Southern California at the time and offered me the opportunity to do something outside of my father's business as well as see how I really felt about working as an engineer. I began designing air conditioning and pressurization systems for the first jet aircraft that Douglas built for commercial use, the DC-8. Jim Easton. Jim worked at Douglas for five years, and toward the end of that time he began to realize Douglas Aircraft and its big bureaucracy wasn't really where he wanted to be. Even after the prolonged separation, not speaking with his father for years, his thoughts turned back to Easton. I felt that I could bring both my engineering knowledge and experience to bear, and in doing so help my father grow the business. Expansion. The immense popularity of his arrows and the demand for other tubing products meant that Doug was operating at full capacity, so if he wanted to keep pace, growth was the only option. The Hiring of Larry Belden In late 1956, Doug hired his first non-family employee, a boyer from Oregon, a mining engineer, and an archer, Larry Belden, a genuine Renaissance man skilled in everything from ship engineering to dog sled mushing which was his transport while working as a miner in Alaska. Larry was an avid hunter and fisherman, an expert tool and dye maker, a master machinist, a master gunsmith, an accomplished draftsman and a gifted mechanic, not to mention a skilled woodworker and a fine archer. Just as an aside, Larry himself taught me how to make the four-footed arrows that Doug Easton had originated back in the 1930s. He was a pretty patient guide, considering my lack of talent. Doug and Larry became serious partners in innovation. What Belden brought to Easton was a keen intellect and a passion for perfection matched only by Doug's. Together, they greatly extended the company's capabilities. As Doug told early employee Steve Hayes, many of the machines and many of the inventions came from larry belden who went on to serve a term as president of the national archery association maintaining a deep involvement in target archery throughout his life with belden easton began a long tradition of hiring expert users of the products to work for the company and advance the state of the art larry belden was not only the first easton employee from outside the company he was also the longest tenured at more than 45 years and he worked for the company into his late 80s. A Presence in Van Nuys Contiguous to Los Angeles, the San Fernando Valley city of Van Nuys had historically been mostly orange groves and floodplain, but in the 1950s, the valley was rapidly developing thanks to the explosion of population and prosperity across California. During the war, Doug had bought several plots of land there and now earmarked one as the site for a custom-built factory. In 1957, he built a 10,000-square-foot factory at 15137 Khalifa Street. The modern facility gave him the space for additional draw benches to meet the ever-increasing orders for his precision tubing for non-archery applications. Those tubes were used in everything from jet engine intercoolers to control shafts. Southern California was the world epicenter for globe-spanning jet aircraft technology, and his incredibly strong and precise tubing was exactly what the jet age needed. The XX75 Arrow. Doug continued pushing improvement of the aluminum arrow, and an encounter with a superior new alloy ushered in the next major advancement. The first 7075 alloy in the United States was introduced in the 1940s, but it was secretly developed in Japan as an improvement on the 2000 series alloys used up till that point. The Japanese military used 7075 to build their high-performance Mitsubishi Zero fighter planes during the war. By the way, the same 24 series alloy that Doug Easton had used for his original arrows was used in the frame of the Hindenburg and other Zeppelins. Doug was fairly early in getting his hands on some of this Alcoa 7075. Even later, it became standard for aerospace. Typically, the term aircraft aluminum refers to 7075. Doug found a way to push the limits of the strength of this aluminum. He created an aluminum arrow that would resist bending. But of course, this also made it harder to straighten, so he had to come up with clever ways to straighten them. And as with most of his processes, Those are still proprietary to Easton today. Pixie dust. What's good for aerospace doesn't necessarily make for a good arrow. Greg Easton points out, you want the wing on a plane to flex and bend. You don't want it snapping and falling off the plane. But for arrows, you want stiffness. Doug did a deep dive into metallurgical science and developed his own way to get the qualities he needed out of the alloy. As Greg puts it he thought what if I did all this processing that's normally in the books and then did this other process at the end shouldn't that give me more strength from the standpoint of resisting bending well he studied it well enough to figure that out on his own then developed a new draw bench to be able to do it so he took it to the end of what the metallurgical books described and said this is good but it's not quite good enough Doug took it further he generated a proprietary T9 process As Greg puts it, that proprietary T9 process allows us to straighten an arrow and keep it straight, but it's not really good for airplanes. That XX75 arrow with 7075 alloy in a T9 condition went on to be the best-selling arrow of all time. Home in Encino. Doug was pretty smart with his money and he invested in real estate whenever he had enough to spare. And having bought tracts of land in the then burgeoning San Fernando Valley, Doug had plenty of space for the factory and also for the family home. By 1957, he and Mary had turned three and a half acres of orange and lemon groves in Encino into their family residence, complete with a pool, a workshop, and of course, an archery range a hundred yard archery range. The property remained the family home until Mary's passing away in 1996. A few quotes, this one from Steve Hayes, former employee of Easton, author of The Third Invention and a pretty amazing guy as we're gonna hear about. Mr. Easton made a magnificent, and I'm using this word deliberately, estate in what became a rather elite area on Encino Avenue. I'm quoted in the book uh, this way, it was about a 10-minute drive from the factory. The house was on a large plot of land, at the time probably the large plot, large last plot of undivided land in Encino. The front lawn was 100 yards. So there was an archery target set up with a Valencia orange tree right behind it. You'd stand on the shooting line under a large oak tree. You'd shoot 90 meters, and then you'd go another five meters behind the target, pick an orange, and if you wanted to, you could eat that on your way back and uh, just between you and me folks i did that fairly often don rabska says mary would often invite you in for her famous apple pie she didn't have to ask me twice on that one i'd go in and have a cup of coffee slice of pie then i'd go back to shooting don and i spent many hours shooting at that range over the years mary easton had told friends I felt so sad at first when we moved to Encino because the house was so big, it frightened me a little. The workshop next door was magnificent. Doug had built it with vaulted ceilings. And in there was everything you could want for an archery workshop, heavy wooden benches around the perimeter, a treasure trove of archery artifacts going back to the 1930s, complete sets of bows and arrows from Doug's earlier days working in Los Angeles when he made bows. Quivers full of arrows in perfect condition, bows in various states of finish, and boxes of supplies that were very well organized. Gary Felice, engineer for Easton, said, I got to peer into the shop at the house in Encino for the first time, and it was like stepping into the Notre Dame Cathedral of Archery. You could see the history, the tackle on the walls, and everything else there. I felt really proud that I was part of this whole process, working for the guy that really did the number on shafts and bows. At home, in Hollywood. Beginning in the 1930s, Doug's reputation for quality archery tackle and his location in Los Angeles meant that any time a film made in Hollywood featured archery, odds were it involved Doug Easton bow, arrow, or both. Doug was also occasionally called on to rig special effect arrow shots and act as technical advisor for a film. For example, for the movie epic Ivanhoe, He devised an ingenious telescoping arrow suspended on fishing wire that allowed actors in cork vests to look like they'd been shot. That led to a lot of Hollywood connections and acquaintances, and one of them was the legendary bowhunter Howard Hill, the stand-in who shot the arrows for Errol Flynn's 1938 film Robin Hood. Known for his trick shooting and a big-game hunter captured on film, Howard Hill was a star in his own right his exploits being captured in dozens of films and books, he is credited with popularizing archery through the 30s to the 50s. Though he himself made archery tackle, it was Doug who produced a new stiffer size of aluminum arrow, the 2219, for Hill. Besides being a hunter, Hill was also one of the most decorated competitive field archers of the time. The same year that he won his 196th consecutive field archery tournament, he also set a world record for distance, almost 400 yards. Don Rabska points out that a lot of top archers and also celebrities through those years shot archery at the Easton's house. Doug always had people over testing and shooting equipment. Don himself went on to give archery lessons to actors like Patrick Swayze and Gina Davis. Gina was vying for a spot on Team USA for the 1996 Olympics. Don and Gina and I used to shoot quite a bit at Mary's house. By the time I was working for Easton and Van Nuys, we were practicing just about every day there, and I would take my lunch breaks there. Mary would come out and watch us shoot. There was a period of time when archery had a lot of popular appeal to the American public. In the 1960s, for example, it was a common thing in media to see archery in the hands of actors that even now you would probably recognize. Actors like Lauren Green and Michael Landon and William Shatner. Jay Bars tells this story. In the late 60s, my parents went to an archery tournament in Michigan, biggest indoor tournament at the time. I believe that Jay is referring to the Cobo Hall shoot. And they told me James Drury from the Virginian was there and also William Shatner. And they brought me Fred Bear's autograph. And I said, are you kidding me? Captain Kirk was there and you didn't get me his autograph? What the hell were you thinking? Global Reach. By the late 1950s, Easton had acquired a worldwide reputation for superior arrows. That reputation led to sales And by the 1980s easton arrows were available in more than 120 countries one of those was japan and one of those earliest international relationships with doug easton was formed with hideharu onuma a 15th generation headmaster of a renowned tokyo school of traditional japanese archery kudo easton became one of the first american businesses to export goods in volume to post-war japan Born in Tokyo in 1910, Master Onuma was a ninth level Kudo master, but was open to helping popularize Western archery in Japan. He recognized that Kudo's traditional bamboo shafts were very expensive and difficult to obtain, and he knew this was limiting its growth. To replace them, Doug Easton produced meter long arrow shafts specifically made for Kudo, and as a result, Today, most high schools and universities in Japan have kudo as a club activity. In fact, in Japan today, there are about 600,000 practitioners of kudo. Western archery, too, has had a powerful presence in Japanese schools, with the result that Japanese archers have won three Olympic silver medals since 1972. At the 2020 Tokyo Games, they took bronze in both individual and team men's competitions. Today, Master Onuma's family runs an archery shop in Tokyo and continue to be one of the importers of Eastern Arrows for both Western archery and for kudo. The 1960s. Back to the family business. When Doug and Jim finally reconciled, father and son were eventually able to come to a mutually respectful working relationship, even though there were still strong disagreements between them in the years ahead. Jim Easton took a pay cut when he left Douglas Aircraft to go back to Easton, but he was eager for the opportunity to see what he could contribute to the family business. His ambition would eventually take Easton beyond just the strongest, straightest tubes, but his start was more humble. When I rejoined the company in 1960, I didn't have a title. basically did a little bit of everything. He described working in the plant, drawing tubes, straightening those tubes, cutting them, washing them, just like all the other workers did. Now, that maybe didn't seem like what an engineer should be doing, but it was a great learning experience. I learned every detail of how our product was made, and I also learned that one of the very best ways to improve a machine or process was to actually work with that machine or process for days on end. I came up with lots of improvements by working in the plant and figuring out better ways to do things. Now, Jim's apprenticeship experience back in the company certainly would form the basis for his own plan to have Greg Easton take over Easton 40 years later. DIFFERENT STROKES Dick Tone picked up his first bow in 1951 at the age of five, and since then he became a high-level competitor and renowned Olympic coach. But in his late teens he found himself entering the Easton orbit. He became a close family friend. As Dick puts it, Mary was such a sweet person You just couldn't find anybody better than her. When I would show up at their house to shoot, she'd ask, Would you like a sandwich for lunch? Just a kind, salt-of-the-earth type person. According to Dick, Doug was different. He could be a little rough at times. He'd let you know if he was displeased with what you were doing or how you were doing it. He could be very forthright. His way was the right way. But if you got him alone, he was also one of the nicest guys in the world. And smart. Very smart. A lot of people don't give him credit for just how smart he was. It was a privilege to have been around him and to gain a lot of knowledge from him over the years. As someone who consistently questioned convention, it is no wonder that Doug Easton was so different from those around him, even his son and close corroborator, Jim. Steve Hayes, the early employee, saw those differences as much as anyone. Okay, Doug, he was a bit surly. He was always nice to me, but he was just a gruff guy It was his nature. He knew what he wanted. He was focused. But he didn't have Jim's charm, nor did he give a care about it. I often had dinner with him and Mary and whomever I was married to at the time. They were nice people, and Jim and his wife were also nice people. It was pleasant to be around them. But Mr. Easton was Mr. Easton. Beyond the way they related to others, father and son also held different perspectives, extending to their vision for the company. Hayes told us, Jim always lived in the future. By that I mean he looked ahead. head. That would be in five years. Mr. Easton, meaning Doug, was a man who lived day by day. Mr. Easton foresaw that aluminum arrows were here to stay, so the difference isn't entirely true, but he was focused on making arrows. Jim was a man who spread out. He could see where one day arrows wouldn't be enough. The Hiring of Steve Hayes Born in pre-war England, Steve Hayes grew up playing Robin Hood, shooting self-made bows and arrows. He didn't finish school, turning 18 on a boat sailing to Canada. But Steve was an exceptionally striking man, and he found his way to Hollywood, where he spent a decade working as an actor for major studios. He also worked at everything from bussing tables and parking cars to working for a detective agency. At the same time, though, he lived and played with Hollywood stars like Errol Flynn and Ava Gardner, Not long before coming to Easton, he'd been fighting in the Cuban Revolution with Che Guevara. True story. Now, Steve Hayes has always been an avid archer, and when he again began looking for work, he thought he'd approach the people who made the best tackle. Now, I'm going to spare you the fact that uh, Steve Hayes has a British accent and just read this in, you know, the sort of simulated Steve Hayes voice, because I have so many friends in Great Britain who... Really cringe whenever I try a British accent, but here we go. I'd met Mr. Easton once at a local tournament and seen him at the local archery ranges. Now, understand, I never called him Doug. Other people did, but I called him Mr. Easton. I called Jim Jim, but Doug was always Mr. Easton. There were only two other employees at Easton at the time. I went to the company in Van Nuys, and there were five of us young guys sitting there waiting to be interviewed for a job. From where I sat, I could see it in the machine shop. I could see Mr. Easton sweeping up grease and old metal shavings, and there was something about it that bothered me. You know, the owner of the factory, for God's sake, sweeping up like an ordinary guy. So I went up and I said, look, let me do that for you. And he said, hi, Steve, and so forth. Anyway, he went into Jim Easton and said, I want you to hire that young man. The other guys were sent home. A clean break jim's younger brother bob was also working for doug and he too had ideas for developing new product lines now bob was an avid skier as was jim and bob had come up with a superior ski pole the world's lightest and strongest bob wanted to produce the pole as an easton product but much to his disappointment doug rejected the idea like his older brother jim bob easton is intellectually gifted but perhaps a little more artistically inclined and in that moment He could see the writing on the wall. His father would always do things his own way. Going against Doug's wishes, he left his father's company to pursue architecture and became a world-renowned architect. In 1963 though, with the groundwork laid by Bob, the company began one of its first OEM manufacturing ventures, producing custom ski poles from Easton Tubing for Scott, USA. Now, Scott had already been first to market with an aluminum pole, but those early Scott poles were poorly made. The advanced Easton tubing let Scott revolutionize the ski pole and take a huge share of the global market. Up till that point, ski poles had largely been wood or bamboo. At first, Scott bought the custom Easton tubing and finished it themselves, but by 1965, Easton was producing finished product bearing two logos, Scott's and Easton's because from the beginning, Doug and Jim required that an Easton logo appear on any finished product they made, even those sold under another company's label. And that policy had an incredible impact on the company decades later. An engineer's engineer. The E in the Easton logo might well have stood for engineering. As Eric Watts puts it, Jim had a very interesting management style, geared around being an engineer and a creative guy. By Jim's way of thinking, if he made the best products available, Eric says, he didn't have to worry about marketing or having a sales program. That was his focus. We had the best engineers in the industry in all the product categories we were in. Now, meetings with fellow engineers and I can certainly attest to this, could be intense. Engineering VP Ted Palamaki said, "You really had to know your stuff." Jim liked engineering more than other parts of the business. He himself is an engineer, so he was way into that. Jim's repositories of knowledge and expectations are at an equally high level. He always knew the specs on everything and expected you to know them as well. If you asked Jim, what's the tolerance on the diameter of this point, he just knew it. 0.239 plus or minus 3. If you had to look it up, you were not measuring up. And I can assure you that Ted's story is accurate. (laughs) Tony Palma, who went on to run Easton Sports, remembers how sincere Jim's drive is, taking pleasure in constantly finding engineering challenges to take on. I can't tell you how many Friday evenings we spent having dinner at 11 o'clock at night dreaming. It was fun. He was involved as one of the guys who just wanted to help, an engineer, as opposed to, oh, this is Jim, the owner. Moonshot Even with Easton's forays into OEM products like aluminum ski poles and golf glove shafts and other things, Doug wanted to keep the company's focus on leveraging their strengths in aluminum drawing and swaging. If anything, Jim wanted to go further, so this friction once again manifested between father and son. In the early 1960s, John F. Kennedy ignited the American public's imagination with his proposition be the first to land a man on the moon his argument because there is new knowledge to be gained in tackling the challenges not because they are easy but because they are hard resonated with Jim and his mindset in the short term Jim knew his father would not be pleased with his side venture after all the project drew from outside Easton's core competencies and likely wouldn't add to their bottom line but he went ahead anyway not a problem As Dick Tone puts it, Jim came into the arrow straightening department where I was working and said, does anybody know how to type? And I said, oh yeah, not a problem. So he took me up to Mary's office where I typed up a proposal for him. And then I went back to straightening arrows. Well, a month or so later, Jim comes back and says, you remember that thing you typed for me? Well, NASA wants a prototype. A friend of Jim's who was a cryonics engineer had developed an insulation shroud for the seismometers for the Apollo space landing program and Jim had been trying to get NASA to approve the contract to build them. He said, We're going to start building in the evenings. Would you like to come help us? I'd go after dinner and help them. I basically did most of it because neither Jim nor his friend were very good at building things, and every night Jim would hand me $20. At the time, I was making a buck seventy-five an hour, so I was tickled to death. A month or two later, he came in again and said, They approved the project, and we need to build a bunch of these. Would you like to head up the project? Not a problem. So we built a clean room and had a government inspection and I ended up building 12 basically by myself. The Mylar Teflon shrouds had to keep the seismometer within plus or minus one degree with a 500 degree temperature swing on the surface of the moon. As it turned out, they actually did go to the moon. I think there's four of them up there right now. I hope you've enjoyed this third segment from the Easton 100th anniversary book being published later this year. If you're interested in getting your hands on a limited edition copy of the book, send an email to easton100 at eastonmg.com. That's easton100 at eastonmg.com, and they'll get you on the list for further information. Thanks for joining us on the podcast, and we'll see you again. Our next episode will be from Las Vegas at the Vegas Shoot. See you soon.